Thank you for downloading this episode of Folk on Foot. Before we start, I just wanted to share a brief message. If you like what we do, we really need your support to keep going. You can join our wonderful band of members and you'll get great rewards. These include access to our amazing Folk on Foot on Film archive of hundreds of songs shot on location on our travels around the UK and Ireland. To sign up, just go to folkonfoot.com slash support us. You'll also get an ad-free version of all our episodes and an email postcard from me each time we go on a walk. If you just want the ad-free version, it'll cost you £3 a month and you can get it through your Apple Podcast app or at folkonfoot.com slash support us. Finally, if you don't want to make a regular commitment but do want to show how much you love us, you can simply buy us a coffee. You can also do that at folkonfoot.com slash support us. Every penny we get goes back into making more episodes of Folk on Foot. So thank you and enjoy the walk. We come to the great city of Birmingham to take a trip through its music and history. And who better as our guide than John Wilkes, the singer and guitarist. He's also the man behind the Grizzly Folk blog, the Trad Folk website and the Old Songs podcast. So he's steeped in digging out the history of English music. And Birmingham is a place very close to his heart. So it'll be a joy to walk with him through this great city. John, Hi. good to see you. Thank right you. outside New Street Station under this beautiful chrome... What is it? A chrome excrescence? A chrome... That's a word. Protuberance? A protuberance, yeah. I mean, uh, explosion. Chrome explosion, I think. <laughs> and so we're just here in the right in the heart of Birmingham city centre. Do you feel very at home here in Birmingham? Yeah, it's a funny thing. It's not where I grew up, but it's it was our playground when we were, you know, teenagers. I lived sort of five or six miles out of Birmingham and we used to come in here you know every weekend busking you know drinking carousing and so yeah coming out onto this concourse here outside New Street Station seeing the rotunda next to us the big symbol of Birmingham it's always yeah it's like it's uh yeah I remember Billy Connolly saying in a, a sketch of his that when he got off the train in Glasgow he could feel Glasgow oozing up through his feet and I kind of feel like that it's sort of like Ah, here we are again. It's and what journey have you got planned for us today? Where are you taking us on? Well, we're going on a mixture of places. So we're going to go down into Digbeth first, which is where a wonderful old source singer called Cecilia Costello lived and was born and raised, and she gave to the tradition so many wonderful songs. Um, so we're going to go down and have a look at that. We're going to walk up New Street, which has been, you know, a thoroughfare through Birmingham, I think, since the 1200s. Going to walk through, uh, well, we're on the edge of the bullring, which, you know, has been here since the 1150s, uh, or a market at least. 
and then we're going to go up to Snow Hill, which is a sort of an industrial part of the city, and then we're probably going to end up down by Gas Street Basin and see some of the famous canals. Supposedly, Birmingham has more canals than Venice, so we're going to go and see one of those. Well, it sounds fantastic. Let's get going. <laughs> yeah. So, John, what started you looking into songs from Birmingham? I came across this phrase. I don't know where I got it from. Like, I don't think I made it up. I think I read it somewhere. But this phrase that traditional songs are songs with a postcode, and that kind of really appealed to me, and I found it incredibly romantic. The idea that, you know, you could sing songs in a specific space or a specific place and know that you were singing songs that people had sung in that spot for potentially centuries before. I, I must say that's part of the inspiration of Folk on Foot, you know, that, that to me, to hear a song sung in a place, knowing that the song is rooted in that place, has some kind of special emotion about it. Yeah, it's, it's sort of like being able to sort of like sing across the generations, collaborate with people who have sung these songs hundreds of years ago. It's a sort of weird timelessness. And did you find in Birmingham a rich history of song? You know, is, is this city in particular full of songs that have been made and, and then handed down? Yeah, I mean, it's the more that I looked, the more that I found. So I started off with a book that many of your listeners will probably know, and it's called Songs of the Midlands, and it was put together by a scholar called Roy Palmer, who was based in Birmingham and did a lot of work with folk song and folk clubs in the 60s and the 70s. And I got that book and I started having a look on the English Folk Dance and Song Society's website where you can trace those songs using a Google map to see exactly where they were collected. And there were no songs collected really from where I specifically were from, but there were a lot in Birmingham. We're going to cross over here. Okay. And the more that I looked into it, the more that I found that actually Birmingham had this huge history of creating songs. Birmingham obviously is known for the Industrial Revolution and it had this nickname, the toy shop of the nation, because it made so much stuff, you know, from chains to sort of pen nibs and sort of all sorts of things. I mean, where we're about to walk into now would have just been this huge, vast slum of people and the noise and the smell must have just been intense and incredible because it's all, you know, metal workers, basically. But then there was this other sort of slightly lesser known industry, which was songs. And, you know, I, I've started to think that Birmingham may have been the jukebox of the nation as well. Roy Palmer pointed out that in 1800, there were no song publishers in Birmingham. And by 1885, there were no song publishers in Birmingham. But in those sort of years in between, those 85 years, 40 major song publishers came and went and probably published street ballads. Close to a million, he estimated. Wow. So, you know, huge amounts of them would have just been doggerel, but there are some absolute gems in there that have been completely forgotten. So we're on, this is Hurst Street, so we're now in the, in the gay quarter uh, and also the Chinese quarter of Birmingham. But we'll be going around the corner in a minute into an area called Pershaw Street, 
Um, and that, as I say, would have just been intense in terms of, you know, the, the amount of people. I mean, I, I did a little research for you this morning and I, uh, I knew that the population boom had been huge, but in Birmingham, you know, in, in about 1700, I think the population was 11,000 and by 1800 it had gone to 100,000. Wow. The city sucked in people from the countryside to coming in to find work. Yeah, just, I mean, the absolute definition of a melting pot. And just to get a picture in my mind of what would have happened with these millions of songs being published on, on bits of paper, mm. where would they go once they'd been printed and, and what would, how would they be sold? So effectively what would happen was that you would have somebody who knew the tune. So if you look at a surviving broadside ballad now, sometimes, but not always, it'll say at the top, to be sung to the tune of such and such. And then, of course, you've got to know what that tune is. And sometimes those tunes have vanished as well, so we don't actually know what those tunes were. But at the time, what would have happened is somebody would have had this sheath of songs standing on the side of the street, and they would have been singing their best tune to it. And if you, if you liked that tune, and if you liked the sound of that song, you would go up and, and buy it off them. And those songs were quite often local stories. I mean, there's this kind of idea that folk singers were kind of like on news readers of the day. That news that they were telling was often stuff to do what was going on locally. So you'll get songs with amazing titles, uh, a ballad on the boxing match between Bill Giles and Bob Newman for this princely sum of 25 pounds on the 1st of April, 1825. And it like really specific stuff, you know, not the sort of thing that rolls off your tongue but really the sort of thing that people would go, I was at that boxing match, I want a bit of a souvenir of that. Or it might be something to do with uh, quite often quite grim circumstances. What happens if we go down here in between the two buildings here, there's a narrow cut through? So what we're going to do now is we're going to walk down through an area called the Arcadian. This is, I used to come drinking here with my friends when we were, when we were we. Where we are now is we're sort of encroaching on the edge of an area called Digbeth, which I think for a lot of people who pass through Birmingham is better known as Birmingham Coach Station. Mm. Uh, but it's um, Digbeth was this area that had you know a lot of slum living around here in the 1800s. And up here on Pershaw Street, which we're just coming onto, there was a woman called Cecilia Costello was born up here pretty much where we're going to come out here now and it's, it's a it's a student accommodation now but it would have been a place called Dean Yard which was where Cecilia Costello was born. Cecilia Costello is one of Birmingham's most prominent source singers. And in the late 18, I want to say, let's just say the late 1800s, Cecilia Costello was born here and she was a woman who learnt her songs from her father, learnt her songs from the workhouse, not that she was an inmate, but she, I think she actually worked in a workhouse, learnt her songs there, and also was a screwmaker just on the other side of the railway bridges over there. And she 
was she had a mind like a sponge. She just sucked up these songs and just knew them. And when people went to collect them later in life, people like Pam Bishop, she was in her 70s or 80s and her voice was gone. But, you know, so you can hear recordings of her and she's sort of croaking these songs, but there's enough there to, to make out what she's doing. And she just knew these songs. And they're not necessarily from Birmingham, but they would have been sung on these streets by the people around here. What's also interesting about uh, Celia Costello was that She's one of the few original sources that we have, uh, you know, sort of contemporary sources of we, that we have of sort of street or folk art pertaining to the Peaky Blinders. So she had a song that sort of went, my blokes are peaky, um, and it talks about his hat and his sort of nice clothes, and it talks about how you had to cross the road if you saw him coming, that kind of thing, so... I don't want to mention anything, but you're wearing a very nice cap yourself, John. <laughs> I hope there's no razor blades hidden in there. There's no razor blades in there. And there were no razor blades in the original ones. That's a, that's a sort of invention of the BBC and the, the script writing team, I think. Uh, uh, so what are you going to sing here for us, near to where Cecilia was born? So I'm going to sing a song called The Cruel Mother. Cecilia, you can find this on YouTube, actually. There's a, there's a recording of Cecilia singing this, and she starts it with... Uh, a memory that she has of her father singing it to her when she was a child. And it's quite chilling the way she describes it. She talks about how he used to sing it to her to scare her uh, into being a good girl, basically. It's about a, a woman who has uh, fallen pregnant, uh, not necessarily by her own wishes. And, um, well, you'll see what happens, but it certainly scared Cecilia long and hard enough into her 70s that she remembered it word for word all those years later. Well, an amazing setting because you're right up against a aluminium fence with spikes along the top of it and behind you is a kind of wasteland mm. uh, where buildings have been demolished and I can see graffiti on the walls uh, in the distance and mm. we're right against a brick wall with barbed wire along the top. Yeah. What, what better place to sing? And can you see across that wasteland, there's a big sign from the 1970s says that, that says, 100,000 welcomes. <laughs> <laughs> so this is... This is ironic. Wel <laughs> welcome to Birmingham, an industrial wasteland. By the green woods, I 
Then years went by and one summer's morn All alone and a lonely hour She saw three boys playing bat and ball Down by the greenwood side My boys, oh boys, if you were mine All alone and lonely, oh I dress you up there in silk so fine Down by the greenwood side, oh Oh mother dear, when we were thine All alone and lonely, oh well you Ever dressed us in silk so fine Down by the greenwood side You pulled out your long pen knife All alone and lonely And there you took away our three lives down by the greenwood side, oh Oh boys, oh boys, what will become of me? All alone and lonely, oh I'll be seven long years a bird in a tree Down by the greenwood side, I'll be seven long years, a tongue in the bell, all alone and lonely, oh, I'll be seven long years, a porter in hell, down by the greenwood side, scary <laughs> isn't yeah, it sorry there's a murder a bit of reincarnation well, it's, it's um, infanticide really yeah i mean emily portman talks very uh, interestingly about this song about how it's possible that it's about postnatal depression and um you know at the time it would have just been seen as a woman gone mad and not known what to do and murdered her murdered her children but of course there's nowadays that we know a little bit more about mental health and what goes on, that woman may have, you know, been able to get help. And uh, it's, I think that's a sort of really fascinating take. It certainly didn't occur to me. Um, and I love that about people like Emily, who sort of really put their mind and their thought into what these songs could have been about and give us those interpretations. So yeah, it's a, a fascinating song and really quite amazing, actually, moving to play it right here, where Cecilia would have been sung it by her father, like literally across the road, and her father telling her, you know, 
behave yourself or you could end up like this woman, kind of thing. Putting Very the chilling. fear of God into her. So. Yes. <laughs> Where are you going to take us next? So we're going to walk down um, over to Digbeth. So we're on the outskirts of Digbeth at the moment. We're going to head over to near St Martin's Church uh, and then walk along New Street. So we're just walking in the sort of bullring area now, and we're between a Bill's restaurant and a, a Wings guys. stop and a Five Guys. Under but, the shadow of the rotunda. Yes, and there's a blue plaque on the wall. What's this, What's this, John? This is John Freeth, the Birmingham poet of Bell Street. So this is uh, the edge of what would have been Bell Street. So John Freeth, we talked a little bit earlier about street singers and street ballads. Most of those street ballads would not have been, again, they would be anonymous. People have been writing them, but we don't know who wrote them. Apart from John Freeth. In 1790, there was a pub over just near the rotunda called the Fox Inn on Castle Street. And it was known as a place where songwriters, street ballad singers, would meet, carouse, and um, write songs. Um, and somebody, now let me get the quote right, somebody wrote about them at the time that they were sworn enemies of dull sobriety and care. <laughs> and they were banned from the city. So like, they like to drink? Yes, they like they to like drink, to they like to fight, they like yeah. to sing. They were banned from the city in 1790. All street singers were banned from Birmingham. They were sent out into the parish. Because they were a bad influence? Because they were a bad influence. But uh -huh. what happened was that you couldn't really keep a good song down and they all came kind of flooded back into the city and from there we, get, we start to get the you know, the, the publishers and the sort of ex extraordinary explosion of songs coming out of the city. John Freeth ran a coffee shop called the John Freeth... Now, let me get it right. It was the got John, John Freeth Coffee Corner or something like that. I'm, I'm not going to get it right now. It's not going to come to me. But he was a man who was sort of known for kind of libertarianism and he was very into the idea of sort of giving people their chance. He did a lot of work getting poverty-stricken young men into apprenticeships. And he became known as a poet, and I love this fact because it's a clear... There's fate happening here once again. He became uh, known as a poet because he wrote poetry uh, to mark the release of a political figure who was also into sort of uh, the support of liberty. Uh, who was called John Wilkes. <laughs> so <laughs> An ancestor, his, perhaps. Well, spelt differently. He uh, was J-O-H-N-W-I-L-K-E-S. So all the things that I hate about when people spell my name wrong, he had it. But. <laughs> well, we doff our caps to it. Well, you doff your cap yeah, to him go. anyway. Go, uh, since we're here. <laughs> Let's carry on up. We're just, just outside St Martin's Market which looks like an amazing Aladdin's cave. Let's just go in and have a look. Is this sure. where you used to get your kit? Yeah, Friday lunchtime, we'd finish over at Sixth Form College in Solihull and we'd jump on the train. I mean, we were basically, we were trying to, to dress like Jarvis Cocker, I suppose. This would have been about 1994. And around the corner here, boy, if you want some fabric, <laughs> this is the place to come. There's fabric and fruit. Open stalls with bale upon bale of Colourful fabrics piled up. Yeah, 50p for two metres. You can't go you wrldn't wrong, get can that you? In London, would you? <laughs> you certainly <laughs> wouldn't. I mean, it quite amazes me that, that actually none of that this bit has been left untouched because, you know, or if we look over there, we're looking at 
Selfridges, which, you know, probably may well have been part of sort of the Millennium Project. So Selfridges has been here some time now. Looks like a spaceship's landed, look, doesn't it? Does it? Look you like know, it's covered in and chrome discs. And that's kind of how I feel about this area of Birmingham. It used to be, you know, really kind of the place where you'd come for your bargains and sort of, you know, you get your cup of tea and all of that kind of thing. And a lot of this area, a lot of sort of what was the bullring, is now this kind of big sort of space age looking place. But you still get these little corner bits here, like, like St. Martin's Market and the Rag Market and, and all of this bit here, which just hasn't changed in, yeah. certainly in 30 Stalls years. Yeah, still selling all kinds of fruit. So yeah, we're coming onto Spicel Street now. Spicel Street, never quite sure how to say it. Um, and this is in a song that I sing called I Can't Find Brummagem. Across the road behind us, where you can see all the dereliction. There's a big building site over there, isn't there? It's just everything's been pulled down. There used to be a pub there called the Ship Ashore. And when I, 16, 17, I used to, like, my, I played my first gigs there. And we're between the old church and the brand new Selfridges yeah. here, you know, yeah. which is an interesting juxtaposition. And then across the road, it, you know, big diggers working where they've pulled the buildings down. It's, so it's a city change. in constant transition, isn't it? Full 20 year and more have passed since I left Brummagem, but I set out for home at last to good old Brummagem. But every place is altered, so there's hardly a place that I would know. It fills my heart with grief and woe. I can't find Brummagem. I had been away from the city for a long time. I, I lived here until I was 18. I went to university in Wales. And from Wales, I pretty much moved to Japan, where I lived for about 10 years. And then I worked in the Middle East for a number of years. Anyway, when we were back here about 10 years ago, I brought my kids here. We came in on the train and we got off at New Street and I had no idea where I was. I couldn't even find my way out of the station. And you know, there's I was, been so much change. So much change and I was, I was lost and my daughter was sort of saying, you're not really from Birmingham, are you, Dad? You're some kind of newbie. And uh, we made our way over to the Birmingham Museum. When I got there, there was this big wall of buttons. It's like the history of Birmingham. And the first button I pressed, was this guy singing a song about how he'd been away from Birmingham for 20 years and he'd come back and he didn't know where he was. I was like, I'm having that, like that's, that's fate there. So I, I learned the song, but yeah, I, when I got to that song and I, got, I managed to get hold of the, the broadside, there was so much Brummy dialect in there that doesn't even exist in modern Brummy dialect that it was almost, you know, in, impenetrable. You couldn't really see what was going on in the song. So I thought, well, the crux of the song is here. But it's clearly a song that can evolve, like the city is always changing, as we've just said. And so I, I rewrote chunks that didn't make any sense anymore, and I put the ship ashore into it, and I put Spicel Street, which we've just walked up. As I was walking down our street, as used to be in Brummagem, and now nobody I'd admit, there's no one there in Brummagem. And Spicel Street's the great unknown, and so the old church stands alone, and poor old I stands here to grow. I can't find Brummagem. 
that's a really interesting example of how folk songs can change, but they're still doing the same job in a way because it's yeah. you know you, you took the idea of the song, but you just updated it for your generation. Right. Exactly and do yeah. you think that's okay? Do you? You don't think we should? Have no, I don't think. No, no. I mean, you know, Martin Carthy told me. I think he got this from Dave Swarbrick, but he said you can do anything to folk music. It doesn't mind. You know, it's it for me. It's like I, you have to have a respect for it, but in a sense, it's raw material. On Fridays to the ship ashore We'd set sail for Brummagen From the ship to Snobs we'd go once more A heady night of Brummagen And though it all feels safer now This cleanliness won't do somehow This dig bus here I wouldn't know I miss the rogues of Brummagen Oh, I remember one John Grousey buckles made in Brummagen he built himself a country house to be out the smokes of Brummagen. And though John's country house stands still, the town itself walked up the hill. Now he lives beside a smoky mill in the middle of the streets of Brummagen. This song is more of a music hall song. We do know who the author was. It was a guy called James Dobbs, and he sang this, I think, in 1828 at uh, the Theatre Royal on New Street. So not essentially a traditional song, but a very old song. And uh, yeah, a musical song probably. You've got your guitar out, John, and you're sitting on a bench outside Shepherd's The Hairdressers. Yes. In the Piccadilly Arcade with yes. the beautiful painted ceiling. It's lovely, isn't it? And I just popped into The Hairdressers and they said that this used to be a theatre and that their unit used to be the ticket booth. And that must have been the theatre you're talking about, where the song would have been sung. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I've wanted to do this for so long, so I'm really quite excited about this. As I said, it was sung here in 1828 by James Dobbs, who was a, who was a music hall, very popular music hall singer. I mean, some of your listeners might remember it. <laughs> we have a very useful audience, what are you talking about? Among the changes that abound In good old Brummagen May trade and happiness be found In good old Brummagen And though no ship ashore we've got And special streets a coffee shop May we always have enough For a cup of milk within Brummagen Thank you. <laughs> what was it that first drew you to folk music? So, I was raised in a household. My mum was from Liverpool, and her family has got all sorts of, you know, Beatles-related stories and all of that kind of stuff. And uh, my dad was from London, and he was a professor of literature specialising in Shakespeare studies, so he ran the Shakespeare School in Stratford. And Mum was a big Beatles fan, Dad was a big Rolling Stones fan. They both sort of agreed on Simon and Garfunkel. And so that was allowed, Paul Simon was allowed. And then my parents got divorced 
and mum married again and uh, Rob, who came to live with us when I was about sort of 14, I think. He brought with him a love of Joni Mitchell and names like Bert Yanch started coming into the house and the conversation, John the Fish, <laughs> all these sort of names that, he was from Cornwall and he used to go and watch these people sort of singing these songs uh, in Penzance when he was a teenager. And so that, that became quite interesting to me. And when I was at university, I really started to explore that. And I remember I was at university at Bangor in North Wales and I remember I used to play at a place called the Greek Taverna in, in the High Street or, or High Bangor as they called it. What were you playing? I would play acoustic guitar and I would play Bob Dylan songs and I'd play Bert Yant songs and I'd play um, Martin Carthy songs. And I'd do it on a Wednesday night, usually in return for 20 Marlboro Lights and a plate of potatoes and a pint of beer. <laughs> uh, <laughs> happy memories, but, um, but yeah, I, what I really remember, I've got a vivid memory of being in halls of residence and listening endlessly to the debut album by Martin Carthy. So this would have been about 96, I suppose. And, um, you know, everybody else was listening to, you know, Westlife and stuff like that and sort of teeny pop type stuff and thinking that I was kind of a bit odd because I was listening to this old man with a guitar. And did you um, deliberately set out to try to emulate any of his guitar technique? I suppose the guitar technique, my finger picking style comes originally from listening to Nick Drake, who, you know, came from the village next to where I sort of grew up. I was fascinated by what Nick Drake could do, but, but all that crowd of musicians from that, that period, you know, from the sort of mid-60s to early 70s, what you might call the Soho legends, really. From this, the coffee bars in the Soho yeah, right. folk clubs. And there was yeah. a club called uh, Les Cousins on Greek Street where they all used to play, and they all thought it was called Les Cousins. <laughs> and, uh, and they all thought, uh, some one of them told me this, that they all thought that Les was the name of the bloke who, who ran it, and nobody had ever met him. Anybody met Les yet? <laughs> <laughs> Would you like to sing for us? Or, or we'll, go over to, we'll go over to the arcade and we'll sing Oh, yeah, there. great. Yeah. So th is this the cathedral? This is the cathedral. This is the cathedral here, right? We're standing in the lee-off now, actually, in, yeah. the, in the graveyard around it. And um, another imposing building, yeah, but yeah. a sort of oasis. It is an oasis of, of calm. Green. So we've just come round the corner from the cathedral and we're outside an arcade, another arcade, the Great Western Arcade. Yeah. Is this a significant spot? Well, we're in an area of town called Snow Hill. I talked earlier about the songs and the printing of the songs and the people who, who published the songs. There was a song publisher up here called Watt and quite a lot of those people were what you might call sort of entrepreneurial. I think they weren't necessarily out to print songs as their sole f form of income. They were there to just try to make a bit of money. Um, and some of them did it extraordinarily well and extraordinarily successfully. There was one chap who his sort of annual uh, income was recorded as being about 20,000 pounds just from making songs, which would be roughly about 2 million in today's money. So, you know, no small change. Um, Watt wasn't one of them. He, I think if I'm right, I may be confusing him with someone else, but I think he was, uh, arrested for not putting stamps on newspapers, a, a kind of 
law and rule that I don't fully understand. Like, I don't know why you would go to prison for that, but not a lot known about him. But he only seemed to have, like, two songs, really, on his books, certainly two songs that I've come across. One of them was this song called The Sausage Man, which, you know, when you're flicking through a collection of broadside ballads, titles will jump out at you. And that one definitely does, <laughs> No it? question. Um, so... What's it about? Uh, it's about a man selling sausage rolls, ostensibly. Well, there's a town called Birmingham. The population's great. The toy shop of the world is sad. With artisans elate. Well, there's New Street and a street called High. You can see the fashion stroll. But one who always greets the eye, he calls out sausage roll. Sausage roll. He calls out sausage roll. I think what happened from what I sort of read was that he probably had this song written to almost like as a piece of content marketing, whereby somebody with their broadside ballad would sing this song outside a sausage roll shop and try to get people to come into the song. As I said before, when you've got these broadside ballads, at the top of them, it'll often say, to be sung to the tune of such and such. And quite often we don't know the tune. And I think this song had a tune called Mother Dear or something like that. And I couldn't find that anywhere. And my friend Pam Bishop, she is involved in an archive in Birmingham Library of old songs and old broadsides. And I wrote to her and I said, do you know a tune called Mother Dear? And she said, well, let me spend a little time and I'll come back to you. And she came back and she said, it appears to be a rather dirge-like Victorian hymn. And so then it became this really interesting thing because essentially the song, as you'll see, is a song <laughs> in which Initially, somebody's just selling sausage rolls, but it soon becomes clear that the sausage is a euphemism for something else. So essentially what we've got is this song that may or may not have been written about a sausage roll shop. Whoever wrote it used a religious tune and stuffed it full of dick jokes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't wait to hear it. <laughs> a pretty missus with her mama. She cannot help the whim. However courteous they are, their fancies will begin. Well, to take a slice of a cherry tart, our mama can control. But nothing pleases this maiden fair like this man's sausage roll. Sausage roll, like this man's sausage roll. Now I cannot tell if quantity affects so much as sale or if indeed the quality perhaps is pleasing tale. Well, I cannot tell you the reasons why this man he will stroll to male and female passers-by and present his sausage roll. Sausage roll, he presents his sausage roll. Well, if mamas will fast it just be, and papas will be blessed, 
then daughters will not always see their truest interest. Well, I cannot tell you what should be right for ladies on the whole, but I'd say don't stay out late at night and sigh for sausage roll. Sausage roll. I think what's interesting about this song is that a friend of mine heard it, heard me sing it, and he said, it's great, it's a really fun song, but you can update this one. And a couple of days later, he came back with a verse that I'd tacked onto the end of it, so. Well, on New Street, in more recent times, you can hear his song on high. He's calling out his sausage meats, the best that cash can buy. But the lads and lasses, they turn away. They treat him as the dregs. They don't want his sausage meat. They want vegan, bought from Greg's. Sausage roll. They want vegan, bought from Greg's. Sometimes fantastic. <laughs> Listen, just in the arcade there, there is a Greg's. There is a Greg's. Can I buy you a sausage roll? A vegan one, please. Yeah, OK, let's go and get one. <laughs> John, I wanted to ask you about trad folk, oh. which, from a standing start, has become something of a phenomenon. <laughs> so, <laughs> tell you. me why you started your podcast and your website you know, to try to get more people involved in, in traditional folk music. About ten years ago, my dad died quite suddenly, and I became quite conscious of the fact that I didn't know terribly much about his side of the family's history. And I had a vague memory of my grandmother maybe 20 years ago. One morning she'd been at the sherry and she decided that she wanted to tell me about how she met my grandfather. And she said, well, he was a Morris dancer. I went to my uncle who's a bit folky, very folky, and I said, can you tell me more about that side of the family history? And he told me that they had met at Cecil Sharp House. What, your grandparents? Yeah, as Morris dancers. And, and fell uh, in love. Fell in love. Across the hankies. Across the hankies, yeah. <laughs> We're going to go down that way. OK. That means it's, it's in your blood. That's kind of... Folk music. It, you could kind of say that, couldn't you? I went to Cecil Sharp House probably in 2015 for the first time, just to see where they had met. And I went in, and as you know, in Cecil Sharp House, up there in Camden, you'll hear quite a lot of people rehearsing. I stepped into the building and I heard these tunes and I instantly realised I knew them. I suddenly had memories of my grandmother playing the recorder and playing these tunes on the recorder. So I started becoming really interested in what traditional music was and you know, what it meant to me and what it meant to my family and all of these different things. One of my neighbours at the time was Paul Sartin from Bellowhead, who sadly left us last year. I started chatting to him a bit more about traditional music and he started saying, well, I know everybody in the folk scene. If you want to find out about these songs, talk directly to them. So I started a blog in about 2016 that was called Grizzly Folk. Um, and the idea of that was that I would just persuade people like Eliza Carthy, Martin Simpson, to tell me about 
their relationship with traditional song, what it meant to them. The, the, the blog sort of went fallow for a few years because I was working on something else to do with like my day job, really. And then I left my, uh, a job that was taking up quite a lot of my time about 18 months ago, and, and I, I was quite ill at the time. I, I was sort of housebound for a little bit, and I thought, well, what could I do with my time? I'll take those, those old interviews from the Grizzly, Grizzly Folk blog and I'll stick them on a new site, and I'll call it Trad Folk. But were you trying deliberately to set out to attract a different audience to the music because you were doing it in a so my, more contemporary style? I suppose what, what has made Trad Folk something of a success, when people tell me what they like about it, they like the fact that it's got a sense of community. So what I was really conscious of doing was it had to have a website at the heart of it, but the community part of it had to exist through social media and it had to be really have that community sense to it. In, in this case, I actually focused more on Instagram because I was interested in could you get sort of younger people, like people in their 20s and 30s, to be interested in traditional music. And are they seeking out something in the music that appeals to a more contemporary that's um, the society, great, do you think? That's the big question. That's, um, you know, and I ask quite a lot of the people that I interview that kind of question. What is it at the moment that makes you feel like there is a kind of boom of interest in traditional rituals, music, all of these different things? And most of those answers come back to a mixture of politics. So we live in an age where there's very much a, an us versus them kind of feeling. I think we're seeing a reaction to uh, this landscape that is very much built around haves and have-nots uh, and a Tory government that just seems to have lost its head. And so if you can't trust the people who supposedly lead you, then you turn to the things that feel like they've got longevity and real value to you as a human being. And I, I suspect that that's where this comes from at the moment. Now, where are we going? We're going to walk up to the Gas Street Basin. So we hear so often that Birmingham has more canals than Venice, so we're going to go and see if we can find one. Let's go. Broad Street, which in my day was known for its nightclubs and it was quite a sort of lairy end of town. But they've done it up massively and there's an area up here called Brindley Place, uh, which leads onto the Gas Street base and the canals area, which towards the sort of tail end of me hanging around in Birmingham, I suppose in the late 90s, early 2000s, it became quite a, a nice place to go. But what's quite interesting is that you'll sometimes see uh, stars in the pavement. You can see one coming up here. It's known as Birmingham's Hall of Fame. So you'll see stars for Noddy Holder. Oh, yes. You'll see stars for Jasper Carrot. This uh, is Aston Villa team of 82. That's right. Uh, <laughs> I don't were, that was a legendary year, <laughs> I assume, I guess before so. your time. Yeah. <laughs> but up here, we have a bridge over the over the basin that has been renamed Black Sabbath Bridge. <laughs> <laughs> oh, here it is, Black Sabbath Bridge. Well, what a... Liverpool eat your heart out. And here, here they are themselves, Aussie geezer, 
Tony and Bill. Uh, there are actual pictures of them overlooking the canal here on Black Sabbath Bridge. Yeah. Whoa. Legends. It's a place of pilgrimage. It is a place and I of think pilgrimage. The music is playing, is it? No. If I, if I were to um, if I were to look at that QR code, I bet I'd hear some Black Sabbath. Yeah. So this is Gas Street. This is so this area is known as the Gas Street Basin. Uh, but yes, this is all canal side. And when I used to come here, it was usually as part of school trips. Uh, you know, we would be taken on canal barges up and down what at the time were filthy, filthy canals. But and this would have been the, the beating heart of transporting the materials Absolutely. needed for the industry that took yeah, place here, let's take it? a left down here. Well, here is a school trip. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we've come right down now and there's a, a bridge over the canal. There's some narrow boats here. There's a, there's a pub over there called the Canal House and a, a massive sign painted on the side of the warehouse opposite with a great big chimney going up which says food drink cheer regency wharf yeah i think that building over there has been used in peaky blinders as a back shot like a backdrop yes although i think most of peaky blinders was filmed in liverpool but um and that's got a loading bay hasn't it that building across the yeah, way there with a big a crane hanging out yeah um, a very popular pub and what is the song you're going to sing for us here John. So I'm going to sing a song called The Pretty Girls of Brummagem. There's the word again, Brummagem. And this was a song that I found in that sheath of songs that Roy Palmer's widow sent to me. Um, it didn't have a tune to it, so I had to create a tune for it. Uh, but I found it quite touching and beautiful. Somebody described it to me as the Penny Lane of Birmingham after I'd recorded it, because it tell, it's a character song. There are lots and lots of characters that turn up in the song. And they're all men, and they're all essentially on the pull. But really, as you get more into it, you realise that they're mostly just trying to find love. And it becomes, actually, towards the end of the song, the various characters are so in need of love that it becomes quite moving. And really, it just again, it's another mark that these songs, this was published in 1833, I believe, and this song sort of points out to us that, uh, that really nothing changes. We're all just sort of looking for someone, putting our best togs on to try and impress them. And uh, it's just a beautiful song in that sense. Sing about the fair and praise therewith their grace and there. The country has its damsels rare that many hearts have bond on. But for rosy cheeks and forms divine, for sparkling eyes and teeth so fine, no other maidens can outshine the darling girls of Brum. The dandy takes such mighty care To spruce his purse and curl his hair He wears whiskers too, a killing pair He thinks he's not by one done Then up New Street he struts so gay Smokes his Havana all the way 
He swaggers in his fine array to charm the girls of Brum. The shopman saves up all his cash about the street to cut a dash. In beauty's heart to make a splash With pride enough to stun one On Saturday his clothes get out On Sunday proudly struts about By Monday he's all up the spout Through charming girls of Brum The chimney sweep, he cries, oh wow, I hate this vulgar calling now. I means to be a slapper bow, I'll go where there is fun done. I'll wash my face so lily white and sport my Benjamin all right. And shan't I flare up, blow me tight, I'll game the girls of Brom. An old gentleman of sixty-four By gout and asthma plagued so sore Inspired by love he feels pain no more He's anxious as a young man Cry talk of age poo-poo all stuff I'm quite the lad I'm hale and buff I'm sixty-four that's young enough To charm the girls of Brum so in every rank and every stage The Brummagem girls, they're all the rage Their beauty charms both young and age They really are by none done their bliss, their lovely faces dear, wherever or when they shall appear, and may good fortune always cheer the charming girls of Brum. That was fantastic, John. I have to say, just as you were playing there, uh, the charming girls of Brum have arrived and are bar uh, getting onto this barge. There's a large party of uh, young women getting onto, onto the barge behind you there. I expect... And there was also a hen party that went past well, on the other side common. of the canal. We're in hen party kind part of the town. I it? think you charmed them all I suspect that those song. are the charming girls of Italy over there, I think. <laughs> <Possibly>. <laughs> this is quite a tourist area. So. <laughs> well, it's been amazing to uh, spend time with you here in the centre of Birmingham and to it's hear your songs and stories about it. And, you know, it really resonates with the history of the place when we hear you sing the songs mm. on the spot mm. where they were collected or originally sung. It's fantastic, John. Thank you. Well, thank you. I mean, it's been an absolute pleasure to bring the songs back here. I, just, I do love doing that to actually come and sing the songs in the place that they would have been sung. But I don't think I've ever done it in quite such a hyper-local way. Um, it's usually on a stage somewhere, but uh, 
Not so in Greg's. Not in Greg's. <laughs> <laughs> John, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> We really hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we enjoyed making it. And if you'd like us to go on making more of these podcasts, please support us by making a contribution through Patreon or by buying us a coffee. You can do both things at folkonfoot.com slash support us. And we really appreciate any donation, no matter how small. We love making Folk on Foot, and with your help, we'd like to go on making it forever. Forever.